Welcome to The Conversation, the podcast about technology, instructional design, and the learning sciences. This week, our topic is on experts and novices. But before we get started, I'd like to introduce my guest, Brandon Dove. Brandon, can you tell us a bit about yourself? I've been a student slash employee slash grad student, I guess community member of Adelphi, I guess for nine years now. Um, so I went to Adelphi and got a uh, bachelor's degree in music and composition. Um, and during my time there, I was working as a tutor for the Learning Writing Centers. I kind of help them help the Learning Writing Centers build out persistent online resources, find ways to make, make things more efficient and serve students in new ways. So the ed tech portion of what I do definitely pertains to, I guess you'd call it informal learning, simply because it's learning that's not in a classroom. Um, but I also related a lot to my music, which I do outside of work. Thank you for that. Welcome. And I see you have a lot of questions here, so I was wondering, where do you want to get started? I know that we said we might not necessarily follow script, but there was an introductory. What did you think of the the last podcast? This is last semester's podcast, right? Yeah, I, I pulled a couple of things um, that I liked from your discussion with Brittany. The chunk that I put in quotes here uh, is no longer refine our skills. That was something I think you and Brittany were talking about in reference to the Rubik's Cube and... Uh, in the cast reading, which talks about the kid who was working with the Rubik's Cube, I think Brittany was asking, is there a ceiling or will there be a point in which you just simply can't improve your speed any any further? And mm-hmm. at what point do you reach that? So I think for me, these last two weeks, including last week's stuff, I had been thinking a lot about in, in this sort of way because um, I call it neurological determinism. You know, is there a completely free reign for you to just keep learning continuously. You know, at some point, there are these sort of logical ceilings. I think in sports, it's a little easier to define because if your reach can physically only go so far. Mm-hmm. Um, something else I wanted to refer to there, um, you mentioned moving on from a dimension like speed and applying maybe all of your learning to a different area or a different technique. And there's this great Ukrainian boxer named Vasily Lomachenko, and he's well known around the world because... His art form is just totally un, unprecedented, and uh, he is known for having incorporated and continually incorporating tons of non-boxing training into mm. his boxing. So, like brain exercises and some of these, some of these memory or like fast action response practice and exercises. You know, like flipping cards and these all these weird things, as well as um, things like dance and ballet. And mm-hmm. this, these things have a profound effect on on his boxing style and they even relate to expanding the art form into realms that it hadn't gone before Mm. so so this is this is one giant thing i figured we'd start with just to make sure i'm understanding you're asking is there a physical or some kind of limit to how much of an expert you can become in any given task or area or physical act something along those lines yeah or or how do you how does one make sense of the desire to just sort of continuously learn and continuously get better in the face of perhaps the fact that there may actually be limitations does that mean that there are limitations to our capacity to learn because um, I, I would hate to think so it's a little bit more asphyxiating and perhaps <laughs> some of the older like some of the older models of quote unquote brick and mortar schooling that 
we were talking about last week. Some of our peers were like, yeah, I grew up and I was considered learning disabled. Um, like there was a cap to it. Um, and some of the UDL reading we're doing, I think, provides a little bit more flexibility and fluidity to the idea that learner variability has a role, but that learning itself is something that's that you can do. Uh, you just have to have a relationship with yourself. Um, but then for me, I, I question like, how can I make sense of that in relation to certain, uh, I guess, sections of learning or certain pieces of learning will have these caps and these ceilings, right? It is kind of, I don't know what that word is, humbling maybe, to think of mm. our learning to be limited in some way, that there's a ceiling or some kind of a constraint to the amount that we can learn. Although, are we talking about qualitative differences or quantitative differences? Like, are we talking about amount of stuff? Uh, that mm -hmm. we learn versus the qualitative stuff, which sounds to me more like what the boxer is doing, which is connecting things that are not connected before, which I find that's a different to just quantitatively. And I don't know about the limitation, how that would manifest, assuming you're not mm -hmm. talking about like some kind of an illness where someone is incapable of uh, retaining new memories or that kind of thing. If you're talking about just reg, you know, regular people in our in the course of our lives, I feel like I know we talked about age a lot in the week on the brain. And I feel like at every stage in your life you are able to harness different parts of your learning that, you know, maybe a younger person is able to learn in this way, but an older person would be able to see, take a more macro view or have a broader, mm -hmm. just from the life experience, which the young person isn't able to do. So I think there are all these, a lot of these differences. And that's why I think the interesting thing about the expert readings is, is to look at ultimately what is the point of learning in school learning in particular, but not, not necessarily limited to that, is that if the idea of going to school is to hopefully do something authentic, like kind of what experts actually do in their real lives or approach it, then we need to know what experts learn and making sure that given the limited amount of time we have in schools that we want to make sure that the learning happens that is similar to what experts learn. When viewing learning through the lens of something like UDL, mm -hmm. that a truth that we are signing on to, one that I would love to believe um, <laughs> is, is that the accomplishment of the expert is accessible by everyone. What do you mean by that? Okay, if somebody is a master at something, what I keep on calling determinism or like neurological determinism, a view like that, I guess, would probably say something like, this person is unbelievable, they're a master, and there are unique parts of them and unique talents that they hold, which allows them to be masterful or allows them to attain a level that not everyone can attain. What I seem to be getting from UDL is that perhaps that is not entirely true and that someone else who, who may not be able to attain that mastery in the same way that the master did, mm. if they were in tune enough with their own learner variability and really in tune enough with themselves and their own style of learning that like they might have a different path to get there, but that ultimately like the level of mastery is not necessarily unique to a particular master. When you say master, are you talking about just a, a, an expert within the field or are you talking about like a genius? 
I guess I was intending it for you yeah, to be like a, like a master within a field. Okay. Um, so we're not talking necessarily Albert Einstein, but yeah. maybe we're talking about like a physicist, like a professor or engineer, I guess. Like, can we achieve that level going through a different pathway kind of thing? Is the approach to learning, you know, uh, capitalizing on UDL and learner variability and sort of highlighting that, does that maybe perhaps indicate that mastery in, in a particular field is something that anyone can access? Or do you think that perhaps there are still pieces of mastery in a field or, or being an expert in a particular trade that are still unique to a person who just their neurological makeup makes them able to access certain knowledge, say in physics, or, or able to arrive at some physics conclusion that somebody else simply would just never be able to do? Because I, I would hate to believe that. I mean, I like to think that things are within our grasp. You know, if we put in the effort and we learn in the way that we think we learn best. I think Barbara Oakley, I don't know if it, it was in the podcast, but certainly in the book that she wrote, uh, she had said that she was really bad at math and she had a linguistics training, but she was really determined. I don't remember the exact train of thought, but basically she forced herself to learn math and, you know, she got a PhD in math or engineering. Um, so I think in that sense, we are able to become experts in, in different fields. You know, I can't say if it's universally true, like can everyone become a musician or artist or can anyone be a writer? I guess I'm, right. I'm, I'm going to the creative fields for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know if everything is related to the brain. Like I, I think that's something that I actually don't know about. I think it, maybe when it comes to creativity, it's a little bit tricky. I do think it's possible uh, you said something that totally just rang a bell, which was uh, when you get into the creative field, it's like, can anyone be a musician or a writer? In my head, it's sort of like, yeah, is uh, it's this weird debate between natural talent versus practice, right? Like mm -hmm. with an, enough practice, can anyone be a great musician? The same musician that somebody else might not need to practice as much for. And so I wanted actually to, to go to page 25 of the cast reading. And uh, there's a quote here. Uh, Felix knows how to regulate his own practice because he's aware that that anxiety can interfere with his progress. He says that he practices daily, but if he is not able to do well or he is not enjoying it, he takes a break. I'm sure I'll probably end up referring to lots of music stuff. Uh, <laughs> music, not only is it my trade and, and what, I, what I do with a lot of my time, but in some ways, mastery and learning iterates itself much more in my growth as a musician. I feel like I never really think about being a student. So this is another thought chunk. And I think of these as like functions and maybe we'll get there because Matt Karinga in the EdTech programming class, the first one, mm -hmm. he referred to functions as thought chunks because you're just like condensing all of this meaning. Like you define all the meaning and like once it all makes sense to you, then you like wrap it into this perfectly named thing. And then every time that point forward, you refer to that phrase or that or that one word, and it yeah. means so. Like the thought chunk that I wrote down here: practice versus natural talent, or easiness versus hardness. I call it doing the hard thing. For some people, they have natural talent. Could you attain what they would attain via natural talent? But for you, it might involve doing something difficult. So in in music, in particular, especially in jazz music and improvisation. There's this, it's very, I think, very akin to language, particularly in terms of the way that kind of communicate in the moment with each other through improvisation. And the acquisition of it, I think, is really similar. 
where there are these huge schools of thought that contrast each other. So mm -hmm. one creatively is more like going to a country and just learning the language through osmosis. Other people prefer something more along the lines of, ah, oh, well, I, I prefer to learn vocabulary and grammar, practice these things to really cultivate my own language or cultivate my own identity. I come across this question a lot when it comes to mastery. So in, again, in this quote uh, in the cast where it's like, he practices daily, but if he's not able, if he's not able to do it well or he's stressing out and not enjoying it, he stops. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, there's this weird line between practice and play. Practice can be defined by anything that involves you playing your music that you're not enjoying. <laughs> you know, like, like if you're if you're just enjoying yourself, that means you're playing. But if you're practicing, that's the thing that you don't want to do. Like the like buckling down and putting hours in, mm. and really, it's hard. And so then there's this weird thing because some of these creative masters of music, they may have put in the same kind of work that somebody who's regimented puts in. This person says something like, I don't know, I just played guitar and I kept playing it and people now tell me that I'm good. But all I ever did was just like do what felt good to me hmm. a lot. And because it felt good, I wanted to do it all the time. It was fun. And, and if it wasn't fun, I found a way to make it fun. Or if it wasn't fun, I just didn't do it. I just focused on the things that inspired me. And that made me practice 12 hours a day because I was just enjoying myself for 12 hours. Versus these other people who say something like, there's a rock guitarist named Steve Vai, hmm. uh, who, who's of this school, who's like, I had a 10-hour practice schedule during my teenage years. And it was really regimented. Nothing came naturally to me. Having fun in the name of discipline to get good. And so there's like this doing the hard thing versus doing it feels good. Like if both of their masteries are considered equal in this case, like one person who just did what they enjoyed and therefore did it for hours and practiced and worked hard because it felt good. And somebody else who didn't necessarily have that piece of their brain that allowed them to <laughs> find fun in practice, but they wanted to be so good that they tried and they sacrificed and they were disciplined. And they're both, let's just say, inherently the same quote unquote level of mastery. Hmm. Is is one more valuable than the other because it involved more work and sacrifice versus fun? My response would be that people should be able to find ways of attaining mastery in their own way because they have their own work habits that works for them. I always talk about meditation because that's probably the hardest mm -hmm. time I ever worked. But like I, mm -hmm. I had a, a colleague of mine who she said she would go to the library and at like eight in the morning or nine in the morning and then work until five and you know very very disciplined in that way and I was never like that I would just go about my life and I knew that I have a very narrow window at the time I, I was most focused on in the evening now I'm focused in the morning but at the time I was most focused in the evening and so I would use that window of time to write whatever it is I need to write and then go from there like if I forced myself to do the nine to five thing or if she did it my way, like, would that be better? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think because that's not the way we work. And likewise, in the examples you gave, I mean, it's always interesting as an expert, like as a musician or, or whatever, um, you find out about how other people do stuff and it could be very different from how you do it. It's kind of interesting to learn and maybe even try it out. But if it's not your thing, then it's not your thing. We have to allow that there's variation in the way we approach mastery, practice, and, and all that stuff. I fall somewhere in between uh, my approach to learning on my instrument. I don't want any stones left unturned kind of person. 
I think I aspire to be that person who's really regimented. And yet the regiment is so difficult for me because I don't know, my life is just not regimented. Like <laughs> a gigging musician and a part-time worker mm. and an online student, just like you're always running around. So they, they're at such odds and I feel like I'm always a mess for that reason. But I, I, I arrive at progress in some weird way. But then I say to myself, okay, so like this other person I know, if they have something in their head, their neural like terrain, right? Mm. The, the synaptic terrain that was carved out for them that they carved out, somehow their terrain allows for them to feel at rest or feel like they're having fun or feel themselves when they're just like drilling licks and drilling scales for hours aren't they neurologically predisposed to be like better if like playing for hours is what makes you better and they just happen to have a brain that makes them more inclined to play for hours than my brain does does that mean they're far they have a far better chance of being great versus me like i, I need to force myself if that's what i actually want and I, and I imagine this is difficult to, to bring this back to like learning in the classroom. Like you want to encourage people to uh, be learners for themselves and understand their learning so that they can really do what feels right and learn in the way that feels right. But there's this weird part of life where sometimes what you want in the long term or in the midterm does not reflect what feels good in the short term. And there's that that dissonance where, okay, like I really want to arrive at some goal, learning goal, fitness goal. Uh, in order to do so, I need to like, I need to force myself and do something that feels unnatural in the short term in order to get to that goal, right? And that's like, is this something that experts, you know, when we, when we ask the question, uh, what, what are the differences between an expert learner and a regular learner? Is it that in addition to being, I guess it fits into motivation, right? Like motivate, you're motivated enough to see the big picture enough to be willing to sacrifice feeling, I guess, unnatural, uncomfortable in the short term. Can you give an example? To oversimplify it for someone who's into fitness goals, if you want to be able to lose 15 pounds over six weeks, you know, you're actually then you're changing your diet and you're exercising more. You're not enjoying it. You're like, oh, it's so hard to get up early. But I know that if I give in to my desires, which may be to sleep late or to eat something unhealthy that wouldn't lead to that weight loss, then if I give in to those desires, I won't accomplish this goal that I know is important to me. And like, I wonder, do expert learners, like they don't struggle with that kind of thing. They just sort of say, okay, here's my goal and I do what I need to do to get there. That's it. I'm sure there are a lot of things that experts have to do that they were uncomfortable with doing not even necessarily related to their field. Like, um, I don't like public speaking, but mm -hmm. I kind of realize that it's part of what I have to get used to doing. And, you know, the more it happens, the less stressful it becomes. I'm, I'm assuming there has to be a lot of things that any expert in any given field has to do, provided that it's not like a major part. Like if, if a major part of your job is something you don't like to do, I think that's going to be a bit of a problem. I'm not going to pursue a job in, you know, becoming a motivational speaker, for example, because that's a big part of it. But like I, I can, you know, I can teach where it's kind of compartmentalized and it's something that I can put aside uh, for a brief time. 
there is one quote that I found, like I highlight because like in a different color. So it was on page 43 of CAST. Uh, mm-hmm. To say, furthermore, members of an expert learning system. So this is like when they were talking about how like the system is the entire school, even down to the people working in the cafeteria. Like this is it's, it's a culture wide thing. Yeah. Um, furthermore, members of an expert learning system demonstrate that they are motivated enough to sustain the effort and persistence that learning may require despite frustrations and difficulties and even when additional time and resources are required. Yeah, so that's, that seemed like it spoke to some of that, like that weird discomfort factor or struggle factor. Yeah, I mean, I think learning involves some kind of struggle, not necessarily like in a physical, painful kind of way, but it does involve you grasping with some some challenge that um, I guess, especially if it's a meaningful, it involves some tension that you want to resolve in order to figure something out or yeah yeah, figure something out or you know turn it into something that you can chunk and then you know put aside kind of thing it's really the process it's the struggle it's the figuring out where you learn all these new things and i guess in our reading where you're actually physically creating these new pathways and then the product kind of just culminates and so then i wonder if what a blockage to many potential great learners is maybe not naturally arriving at a place where they're able to equate struggle with progress. And I guess that relates to even the Bransford reading where they were speaking, I guess, about that, right? About like being okay with struggle, being okay with not knowing everything and seeing that as a source of opportunity rather than a detriment. And I wonder like, do some people maybe what really keeps them from learning is they never arrived at a place on their own where they were able to equate that discomfort of not knowing with, oh, this is progress. This is good. Failure teaches me things. And so like, that's such, maybe such a huge, a huge important thing to instill is that these things are part of the process. And some people get discouraged because they're in environments, even learning environments where you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to raise your hand and be wrong. It seems like a lot of more and more teachers are being told about this idea of a growth mindset. I see them kind of mentioning it. So fixed mindset is is the idea that there's a finite amount of things that we are in terms of what we can learn. and, and, And for that reason, we are threatened more easily by obstacles versus growth mindset is that we are we have a lot more capacity and we can grow. We're not fixed in that sense. How it applies to experts is that experts are always willing to grow um, their expertise, even though, and I think this is in the Bransford reading, even though when they encounter something they don't understand, they are able to build on what they do know and then develop a working hypothesis, which I thought was a really fascinating thing towards the end. But they contrasted students who had just learned some historical subject and then experts who are historians, but not in that area. Even though the students had the factual, more factual information, they weren't able to use it as effectively. Right, I think it was was would-be historians, right? So it was Mm -hmm. even people who were training to be historians, but there was that key difference that I guess, as the study highlights, it sort of pertains to just time, experience, wisdom, expertise, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Where it's, I mean, even relates to this sort of adaptive exercise notion, right? Like where this quality of experts uh, allows them to just be so much more flexible and resilient and fluid 
these things that we've been reading this whole time, right? Like the way, like it was the first thing we read about learning principles mm-hmm. and then it, then it kind of iterated itself physically within our brain. And now it sort of arrives again where like experts, they organize information in ways that allows them to retrieve it well. They continually make connections between things. Mm-hmm. And they, the more connections they make, the easier it is to sort of repurpose, reuse, arrive at places and, and use their vocabulary or their language in ways that it wasn't originally presented to them. On page 34, you, can, you see the chessboard again. Like for me, I, I look at these boards and they don't really, they look as confusing to me because I don't play chess. But mm-hmm. for a chess player, um, you know, one of them would make a lot more sense than the other. And uh, and that's how you know you're an expert, that, that you can kind of just be able to, to make sense of things in ways that other people can't. I might have a segue here to the concept of conditionalized knowledge has implications for the design of curriculum instruction and assessment practices that promote effective learning. Textbooks are much more explicit in enunciating the laws of mathematics or of nature than in saying anything about when these laws may be useful. And this is such an important part of uh, instilling that sense of uh, application of tools within students. And so a burning question that I wrote down was, that is certainly key here, and it's very depth involved and not scope involved. Do you think that, simply put, like school needs to be longer? Because like I think that type of learning certainly takes longer. Um, and then just in general, when considering learner variability, individualizing learning in general just takes longer. So then it makes me think like, should school be longer? Should we be in quote unquote grade school for longer? Do you mean like longer in the school day or do you mean, uh, what do you mean longer exactly? The first place I would arrive at is just, should we be in uh, school for more years? Um, but I guess, yeah, you, that's a good point that you bring up, which is, okay, should we be in more hours per day, more days out of the week, more months out of the year, more years out of life, you know? Should um, everyone get a master's degree? You know, something like that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the issue is not so much the you know they need to be in, students need to be in school longer, but more about uh, schools should make better use of the students' time in school, and I think the pressures of standardized testing, which oftentimes can't properly evaluate the expert learning stuff, that puts a lot of pressure on on teachers. So I, I think that's why instructional design is important. Is that it, we can take what time we are given and make better use of it so that students are not spending time learning what the brands of reading call inert knowledge, but providing them with context and giving students the ability to make connections and transfer it to other things. I think a lot of um, there, you know, there are curriculum designs that using something like a spiral curriculum design, which is where you teach something and you keep revisiting the same concept so that you're reinforcing that idea and you're building on it with you know greater sophistication so that students are able to see the connection and so it's really great when i hear people in this class try to connect things to other classes because that means the connections are working like like you're getting it you know like you get why I, have you read this mm. thing here and then read this other thing here like you know obviously it's a little bit easy for me to control when I'm teaching those classes. But also like when you talk about like programming, right? Everything, hopefully that the classes in this program is coherent and that you see the connections within the courses without 
keeping adding, you know, credits uh, would be, I guess, would be the equivalent of adding hours to a day.、Um, yeah. Within the same number of credits, we, you know, you can keep reinforcing the things, the concepts, the ideas, all that stuff, so that they actually mean something to you. And I think that's probably the most, the more important thing is that you are able to take the stuff you've learned and then apply it broadly versus. Adding content, and I don't want to necessarily、uh, simplify it, oversimplify it to saying like you're teaching general learning in an abstracted and generalized way, and then you're passing information through it. Because I、mm. think the readings were pretty strong that it's not necessarily there are good general teachers, and then there's disciplines that get passed through them like functions. Because like I think it's more complex than that as、mm-hmm. you get into different fields. So not to oversimplify it, but Even if you didn't cover all bases in terms of information or chronology of information or concepts, I guess to your point, like going really deep and demonstrating that process of forging connections and being able to interrelate, I think if you walk away with that, then when you go out and you start applying that, I'm sure you'll pro- maybe you probably arrive at the same amount of information that you would have covered in a far more efficient pocket of time anyway. I guess if you're learning and on your own, that that's different. But like if you're taking a class, whether it's it's in K twelve or whether it's college, like a, a semester is a finite number of weeks, right? And the the job of the instructor is to kind of curate the things and the experiences and the readings and the activities in a way that produces the best kind of learning and transfer. And that's you know that's why it's it's not as easy I guess as it sounds maybe because、um, yeah. it's just not content it's just like here's a list of three hundred things to just read it and you'll be the expert I mean if it was that easy I think we would need a, a concept of instructional design right it's it's the idea that you know a lot of things needs to be designed、uh, in terms of sequence in terms of challenge you know like layers and all that stuff when I was reading the Bransford I think. Page thirty-two、uh, and thirty-three, which was right in the beginning. That's where the chunking of elements, I think, first came up. I I saw this here as、um, kind of like low order versus high order languages, like programming languages, right? So that you know,、uh, okay, now I, I know a little bit of JavaScript. I want to go deep down now and figure out all of these pieces of that are embedded into the JavaScript language, like. Okay, where do they come from? I want to understand them on the cellular level or the molecular level, and that is that's a great pursuit if you're really passionate about something. But JavaScript is what it is because it's a higher order language that allows people who arrive at JavaScript to start solving more complex problems without having to learn these really really machine level languages, and so it, or like React, right? Like people are doing things now on React. That just couldn't possibly have been done back in the day before these languages were developed, because physically, because of CPU usage, right? And also, just this is weird scope thing that goes on, where it, we're using chunks and then folding things into chunks and then building language. To me, it's it's kind of again taxonomic, where you're taking vocabulary information, then building that into concepts, then taking concepts and doing things with them. Then you're arriving at these sort of macro concepts, and then pushing those into new situations. So there's this weird hierarchy, not necessarily in a bad way, but this weird taxonomy or hierarchy. And it makes sense why, when you become increasingly high order in a particular language, you're not only faster or more fluent in the vocab because your processing time is less. You're able to 
demonstrate expertise because you're not concerned with sentence level issues because you're you're like looking at the arguments and trying to make an analogy like you're not using all of your focus to try and comprehend the letters in between the word because you're already like you're already reading sentences or you're already looking at paragraphs yeah that makes sense that's an interesting analogy like if you were you know before the existence of google translate if you were trying to learn a language and you try to translate word for word you get very nonsensical translations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess maybe you can make some inferences, but you don't really understand it. And you're saying that you need to be able to get to a higher level in order to see the patterns, the connections, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and that's sort of how do you how do you get to higher level? Like, so how do you get to that level that the expert is at, where they're still learning, but they're just solving problems, their problem solving and their acquisition of learning. It's just calibrated to a different piece. It's like kind of like further down the line, but they're still just doing this, doing similar processes as you. And how do you get there? As the reading says, like strengthening those synaptic connections by utilizing the language and utilizing it in multiple ways or utilizing information in multiple ways to reinforce it. It kind of creates these frameworks that you have to think about less. So then then you occupy your mind doing things. I mean, like learning principle one, right, when we were talking about needing to, you need to be able to, to find not just, not just meeting students where they're at, but really under having an understanding of like the frameworks that, that they were, that they're arriving with. It's literally like you're dropped in a city and you have (laughs) zero preconception of any landmarks or anything, Mm -hmm. right? So when you like arrive at a piece of information, you just, you walk down like one street so you're like, okay, I can get to this piece of information, but I only know how to do it from walking down one street, right? Yeah. And then like the more you're learning, the more that you're just sort of, you're kind of opening up this map to utilize the conditionalized approach. What you're trying to maybe help instill is you don't even necessarily need to need to cover tons of areas of this city, but you could just stay in one neighborhood, mm-hmm. but just totally keep on going up and down the roads in different ways, right? And then when you want to expand, you know, you expand at a place that's adjacent, right? Mm -hmm. You don't now now start your, your downtown Manhattan, you're in Tribeca. And now you're talking about the Bronx. You want to move somewhere that's kind of adjacent so that there's a way you can get there. And then the more you do this, the more, you know, the neighborhood, the easier it is for you to travel around and find shortcuts. The tour guide, I suppose, can, can show you these different, lay these all out, but only, you know, your car or how you walk, right? You need to understand how, how you travel. And you're like, oh, well, my car, uh, I might not get down this road. It's a little too bumpy. This car is not going to handle it. Hmm. It might break down. So like, it's good to know this is there, but this other way works really well for me. Yeah, I like that analogy because people will get there in different ways. They might like a scenic route or something. So is the teacher in this scenario the tour guide? Is he Is he or she or they the as my boss sometimes says, the air traffic control. Something that came up in the reading that you spoke about uh, in the in the podcast with Brittany, uh, I'm going to quote you. You said, it's absolutely okay for a teacher to say, I don't know, as long as you follow up with, I'll get back to you. Um, and there's this, this notion of vulnerability. There was in the cast reading as well, right? When they were interviewing the teachers, three teachers. So from 37 over to 38, exposing their own learning and making it explicit both in action and in personal reflection might be one of the most powerful parts of teaching. I think even implicit in that sentence for me is like, I'm interested to know why it 
it needs to, the word exposed needs to even be there. Like the language there is totally telling where it, it feels so unteacher like it, it's you're exposing you're they're vulnerable. And so like, it seems that the, so the culture as it exists so strongly discourages it that it feels like you're showing your cards or that you're exposing yourself as a fake or something. And why don't we share these parts of ourselves, all of us, right? If it's all about process, then why is it vulnerable or exposing to show how we do the trick? Yeah, and that mentality needs to change because no one knows everything. Even experts don't know everything uh, in terms of content. It's more about what they can do with the things they know. And, um, and that's why it's important for the teacher to model that behavior to make the students more comfortable doing that. Otherwise, the, t the teacher is the evaluator, right? They, they, they are the ones who put the red marks on your paper or, you know, your test. And that creates a relationship where, you know, the teacher knows everything and the student doesn't. But if you show that process, including when you're stuck, that's helpful, I think, for the students because it allows them to open up as well. It might be even be important or helpful to create moments where the teachers are are trying to figure things out kind of on the fly. I guess that's kind of why I decided to do the podcast because it's not me always like deciding everything. It's um, hmm. more spontaneous. And I don't like, I don't always know stuff. Not knowing does not mean that you are not capable of knowing, right? Or like mm -hmm. the importance of failing, the importance of the struggle, all of these things we were talking about earlier. Like it's, it, this is all part of the process. Even me as the teacher, I don't know. But it's also important to, for me to tell you, I don't know, but I'm going to find out and we're going to find out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, social media definitely presents itself as one of these potential, uh, quote, communities of practice that came up. To me, it was like, oh, social media can totally be that, right? Can It can help form these communities of practice. And as a matter of fact, I'm like totally part of some. Like, oh, that's right. Like when I'm following these music accounts on Instagram that showcase different players Instagram can either really make me excited to like get better mm -hmm. by, by seeing a bunch of people who are really good, um, who all want to contribute, or it could also like really discourage me because people only put their best foot forward. And so, yeah, it's, it kind of almost promotes that fixed mindset because no one shows their process. It's just like showing only the 25th take, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, why do we only celebrate the part of the expert when you look up to someone who's an expert, one of the things that impresses you about them is just their level. And so, but I know, but even though they're operating at a level, it's, it doesn't hurt their ethos if they show that they mess up. Right? Mm. But I mean, then it does make you feel like you're more connected, like, oh, he met, he or she, or they mess up just like I do. Some people or some entities need to conceal expertism if they're using it in some way that involves commodification, maybe? Like you want to hide your process because you don't want other, peop other people to steal it or something? Right, right. Because it's sort of like everyone wants to be the best. So if I'm the best, now all of a sudden I'm like, I have proprietary information. And in music, I, I feel like this iterates itself all the time because there's this, you know, there's this weird competitive nature to it. It's a community of people who all want to play and have fun. But then somewhere along the line, it ends up being this contest. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. And certainly for people who are in the field or who are novices trying to get into the field, those are things that would be helpful. I think, I think that's why mentorships or apprenticeships are so helpful. If your field 
has something like that because it lets you see the process in a way that others don't. And I think a lot of the community's practice stuff, the body of work that they cite from, grew out of studying apprenticeships between mm. different in different uh, occupations and showing how people learn the novice watching or, or you know being next to the expert and then which is kind of how most people learned for a, a long period of time i mean this is like even to to draw parallels to the, the jazz idiom like getting back to this licks versus no licks debate like you know do you practice licks or is that unnatural and you just go and you immerse like some people will argue that all of the jazz greats like they learned by going to the bandstand and looking at the people that, that they were inspired by and going every night to watch them play until the early hours of the morning, mm-hmm. you know, and just studying and immersing. Um, and it, I guess it shows up in learning like in, you know, like curricular praxis and even, even nurses, right? Nurses are, you know, their placements. I feel like, yeah, you see it more in trade-based things as yeah then than you do in k through 12 like sort of just general education another big question that some of this relates to for me which is what the place of being an expert has in education because i think about this a lot in terms of what people's motives are for going to school you mean k-12 or do you mean college or in general i guess all of them because i guess i'd probably say k-12 for all intents and purposes i'll say that the motive there is I was forced to go, right? Or like, this is just what I did. Uh, mm-hmm. This is kind of how it works. And then you obviously, you get the opportunity to choose a little bit more as you get into higher ed. But then I see it in higher ed because there's a lot of education and, and curriculum that is oriented around serving the different values that people have in going to school. And sometimes I feel like the college model, in, in a couple of ways, there's like this like means to an end oriented education, which is for people who want to go for a particular, to learn a particular trade or get a degree, like, I guess the end result of that, like, or the motive is like, they want to get a job, I guess in K-12, it's sort of like to, well, I guess this is like the standardized testing stuff, right? Like it, it turns learning into a means to an end to get you into better schools, to give you better opportunities. Then there's this other, like promoting learning just for the sake of learning or being an expert. But then naturally, like the more people become experts or the more experts we have who just value being learners and being experts, I feel like the more collectively we progress, right? As a society? Yeah. I mean, I'm still trying to think of your original question about what's the role of experts in uh, in school or in education. Like if someone was going to ask, like if a kindergartner said, like, what's the point of you trying to teach me to be an expert? Like, why should I care about being a learner or an expert? I mean, if you can hold up a, a, an expert in the field and say, you're learning this because people who do this stuff actually use it, as opposed to just not even knowing. Like, ideally, schools are preparing students not just to become an, an English professor or a math professor, but to do stuff that they need to do whatever job they are doing so that they know how to write and do critical thinking and do math and think mathematically if you don't see that connection, it often becomes really, like you said, it's about motivation. You lose that motivation. You lose a big picture. Because if the reason is for the testing or for even for getting a job, it's it's not necessarily the best motivation. Especially if it ends there and it's sort of like getting a job, but you can't go further. Or if it's not explored further, like, well, why would I want to get a job? 
And I mean, I suppose like this is one of those things that like if you just keep on pulling at it, you'll take it. I don't want to say dark, but if I'm just, I'm just, I keep on trying to think about a kindergartner who keeps on saying why, you know, it's sort of like, well, why do I, why should I care about learning? And you're like, oh, well, like either like, you know, get a job or like this to, to apply to the things that you love. And it's like, why do I need to do any of that? And it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> the most clear cut answer is like, well, I mean, to survive, but also more than that, like, you yeah. know, like to, to survive, but to flourish, you know, to help to flourish for yourself to right but it's like well why flourish why do we need to flourish hmm. um my, my older brother is in uh quantum computation he is definitely posed with this question pretty often i mean he just does what interests him he he sees the culture around tech and uh i guess the business side of tech a little differently because he's like I'm, I'm around a lot of my friends who just like they all get kind of picked up by google and apple and they leave their college dorms and immediately go into like basically a new dorm for 30 and 40 year olds. Mm. And like just they they code all day and they kind of just keep feeding this thing. This is an exaggeration of his point of view, but like, you know, to, to pump out iPhones and to pump out technology and to, to keep getting better and better. And sometimes he takes a step back and he's just like, why do we need to get better or how, or how better is better? I see what you mean. Like, uh get to a point where life has no purpose because everything, the universe is going to end, that kind of, <laughs> that kind right, of place. Right. <laughs> where, like, yeah, I don't know. Why don't we spend more time just chilling out and doing nothing? Um, yeah, I don't have a good answer. There's, there's my, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know an answer to this question. <laughs> and I especially don't know how I would tell a kindergartner that. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> at a certain point, I'm like, ah, oh, well, because I said so, is going to have to suffice for now. It is worth asking, you know, if you think about like how much time, like you ask someone to stay in school in K-12, that's, that's a big chunk of their lives, right? And not just a big chunk of their lives, but it's an important part of their lives. I mean, I guess every year is important, but I would say maybe that chunk of your life is more important in many ways in terms of like how it defines you as a human being. And so if you are going to have students spend that much time doing something, it better have a good reason, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a unreasonable question to ask. I guess this gets back to like all the way where we started, right? Like the talking about struggle and talking about, uh, you know, doing the hard thing and whatnot. Like I, now I look back and I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful to my parents. I'm grateful to my educators. Like I'm not even grateful for necessarily what I learned or how I learned. I'm just grateful for the fact that somehow I now ended up in a place where I care to learn about things. So like I'm I'm grateful for what however it was instilled in me like I care about getting better now, um, and that's like that one single thing changed my life because like if I didn't care about getting better, life would be a lot harder. But in order to get there myself, you know I needed to I guess do the hard thing right. I needed to go through school and I, I needed to kind of like take a leap of faith I guess. No, I get it. I that makes sense. The only other question that we that that I had on here that what are the outer limits of UDL like. When does it hit a wall? Like you can't encompass everybody all the time. And at some point you keep adjusting Rubik's cube. It becomes, it's not a Rubik's cube anymore. I guess it comes down to knowing when it's appropriate to stop calling it a Rubik's cube. It's okay if it's not a Rubik's cube, but you know, when you, when you have that UDL approach or that approach of being holistic and trying to provide flexibility for all kinds of learners. It doesn't matter if it's a Rubik's Cube or not that you're presenting to them. What matters is you're presenting to them something that works for them. So 
if what you're trying to do is get everyone to play Rubik's Cubes and then you come across a proverbial learner who proverbially doesn't have hands, then you question what the point of the Rubik's Cube is and you develop something, you design something for them that helps them arrive at whatever it is that you're trying to help them arrive at via the Rubik's Cube, even if it's not a Rubik's Cube, but it's, uh, to your point, like uh, something else, you know? I had recorded my conversation with Ryan, who works at FCPE, the Faculty Center of Professional Excellence, who helps out other professors. And one of the topics we talked about is accessibility. And he raised an interesting point about how when you improve accessibility, you are not improving just for the person who needs it, but for everyone else, like everyone benefits. And he used the example of physical accessibility for if you think about streets and having a slope so that people with wheelchairs can get on more easily on the sidewalks. But that benefits not only people who are on wheelchairs, but for people who uh, with strollers, with children, with people carrying luggage. We all benefit from that indirectly. So I think that analogy that he provided was a very good way of thinking about accessibility, not just as helping a very small number of people, but actually having a much more a bigger impact on the classroom. Right. I guess, yeah, ultimately, like, once again, it's it's less about the product than it is about the process, right? We should just be engaging in this thinking. We should be norming ourselves to to be oriented towards flexibility and even to to relate this to, like, closing all of what we're talking about off, that's like probably a great takeaway in terms of the expert thinking and, and how that applies to UDL is just grab everything you can and, and just make this a part of your process continually. I think that's a great way of wrapping up this podcast. Yeah, it's I awesome. want to thank you again for coming on the conversation and bringing in your insights as a musician, as an expert in that area. So thank you for that and have a great weekend. All right. Thanks so much. I'll, uh, We'll talk on uh, we'll talk on Slack and VoiceThread. All right, sounds good. Take care.